Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you for supporting the Cersei Podcast Network by listening, sharing, and giving feedback to our shows. As you may know, the Cersei Institute is in the midst of our year-end fundraising campaign. Your support last year enabled us to add several key members to the Cersei team. With your continued help, we are excited about what the future holds. In particular, donor support helps us provide free resources like these podcasts and the former journal. Please visit CerseiInstitute.org backslash donate to see more about all you make possible and to support us this year. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. I am Tim McIntosh and this is a very special Q&A episode after the two Life of Shakespeare episodes that I recently released. If you've not listened to those, you can go back and listen to them before you listen to this family-style Q&A. Or you can just listen to the Q&A and then go back and listen to the Life of Shakespeare podcasts later. I am joined now by my friends, the Maeda family. The Maeda family lives in Mead, Colorado. We have been good friends for several years. I have taught some of their kids Shakespeare acting, and they've put on a play through the school that Emily and Mark helped found, the Paideia School in Fort Collins. Colorado. And I thought, okay, we just did this kind of long life of Shakespeare. I thought it'd be fun to do something a little bit different for the Q&A rather than just do a bunch of kind of like adults asking questions about Shakespeare. I thought it could be fun to ask the whole Maeda family so we can hear like questions from younger people and questions from, you know, like people who've been reading Shakespeare for a long time. So Let's start this way, you guys, in whatever order you want to go in. Maybe, Emily, you can just point out who goes in which order. I want you to introduce yourselves. I want you to give me your name, your age, and what grade you're in if you're in a grade. Okay, does that sound good? Emily, cue us up. Who goes first? I'm Theophilus Marietta, and I am 13, and I'm in seventh grade. 
Okay. Theophilus Maeda, how old are you? 13. 13. In what grade? Se- uh, seventh. Seventh grade. Perfect. Who's next? I'm Titus and I'm 11 and I'm in fifth grade. Okay. Very, very good. Very good. You guys are going to talk into the mic, right? Okay. Who's next? Uh, I'm Mercedes and I'm 16 and I'm in 11th grade. Mercedes, are you driving? Yes. How's that going? It's okay. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? It's okay. <laughs> I don't, I drive are you a, a terror on the highways? No, I do. She's, Theo, a, she's a great driver. He is always mad at me because I don't go. I don't speed. He's always like, oh, he's trying to get you to push the limits. <laughs> yeah. Theo. Theo. Okay. Who's next? I'm Sophia. I just graduated with my undergrad from Hillsdale College. Okay, great. Um, we're not going to talk about the PhD program that you're applying to. We're not going to talk about that. No, we're not going to talk about that. Who's next? We're not going to talk about that. (laughs) I'm Emily Maeda, and I'm the mother of all these kids. And Emily, you're going to join me for the next full-length, like, five-act podcast that we do on The Winter's Tale. I am so excited. I cannot I can hardly bear it. Do you want to say anything about The Winter's Tale? Like, you know, if you're someone who... He's like, ah, Winter's Tale, I've never heard of it. Why should I pay attention? Let's see. You should pay attention because it is the winter right now. And mm-hmm. Hermione's son says a, a sad tale is best for winter, but it doesn't end sad. And that's what's so nice, isn't it? It we is. End in spring. Um, for me, my most underrated Shakespeare plays are number one, Coriolanus. And number two has got to be the Winter's Tale. It's really? just, it's a hidden, it's a hidden classic i don't know why it's not it better known is. it's such it a great is. play it's such a great play okay i think we have one more introduction and i'm mark Matta. i'm the pops of this a gaggle of children uh-huh <laughs> and we're missing a few children it isn't all the children so you're missing thomas we're missing our eldest thomas evangelina evangelina who's in college and we're missing maximus who is currently watching a show uh-huh. Okay. That's probably smart. Cause how old is Maximus? He is three. Okay. Yeah. His, I know that he's already <laughs> reading Shakespeare. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I am going to pick you guys at random. You have been thinking about some questions that you want to ask about William Shakespeare and guess who's coming first. Titus. I loved your question. I want you to ask your question so that everybody can hear it. And then I'm going to try my best to give you a good answer. Whenever you're ready, mister. How many words did Shakespeare make up? And of these words, which of them was most used? Okay. That's a terrific question. I've done a lot of research. And here is the number that people, that is like the best guess about how many words Shakespeare Yes, uh, made up. Titus, but first, I'm going to ask you, do you have a guess about how many words that might be? 1,700. What? You just, that's the exact number. How did you guess it with such accuracy? That is incredible. How in the world? You are a genius. That's the number. They think 1,700. The problem, Titus, is this. Um, 
it's really hard to tell because spelling back then in Shakespeare's grade was really, really inconsistent. They had mm-hmm. all sorts of different spelling. So if you're going to look up the word lie, a word like book, well, it could be spelled a few different ways or like a, a, a word that Shakespeare made up like enshrine. I think he made up the word enshrine. Well, there could be so many different spellings of the word enshrine. And is he the one who first like used it? It's hard to know. It's hard to know because the spelling is inconsistent. Okay. Now, Titus, we are going to play a little game. Are you ready? Do you have any idea how William Shakespeare made up all these words? Did he just randomly like throw a bunch of letters together or did he have a strategy for making up his words? What do you think? I think he had a strategy. Okay. He did have a strategy. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Do you know what the word, what a prefix is? Yes. Okay. Do you know what a suffix is? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to tell me what is the prefix and what is the suffix. Okay? Here we go. (laughs) The word is encouragement. 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 So what is the prefix? N. And, and can you tell me, how can you spell that prefix for me? E-N. Good. What is the suffix? Encouragement. Encouragement. No, no. What's the suffix? Oh, meant. Meant. Okay. And can you spell meant? M-E-N-T. Perfect. Okay. Now, here's what we're going to do. Titus. You're going to make up your own word right now. Mm. Are you ready? Um, what is your favorite thing to play? Um, Legos. Okay, perfect. Let's make up our own word. Let's take a prefix and let's add it to the word Lego. And then let's take a suffix and add it to the word Lego. And let's just use the prefix and suffix from the word encouragement or from the word discouragement. So take the, one of the prefixes, N or dis, and take the suffix meant and like put it on either side of the word Lego or Legos. Can you do that? Yeah. Okay. Here we- Dislegoment. <laughs> That's exactly right, dude. I mean, what do you? Okay, so we've just added, we've just made this word. Like you were the first person to ever make that word, and now it's going to catch on because there are like twelve listeners of this show, and everyone's going to start saying the word <laughs> dislegoment. What do you think the word dislegoment would mean? Um, taking apart Legos. Okay, perfect. Yeah. The process of taking apart Legos. So you like build the perfect Millennium Falcon and Theo and you get in an argument and he and Theo's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to dislegoment his, his <laughs> Millennium Falcon. So that's, well, that's normally me taking apart the sets. <laughs> oh, you're the one who does the dislegoment? And do you do it like out of revenge or because you want to build something else? Why, why do you do it? Um, build something else. Okay. Okay. So you're very familiar with dislegoment. 
You would even, I would even say you're a practitioner of dislegament. Yes. Is that right? Okay, good. That's really good. Okay. All right. We are going to go next to Theo. Theo, it's question time, dude. Okay. My question is, did Shakespeare intend for all his plays to be read? And why should we read Shakespeare rather than only uh, see his performed works? Okay. Okay. I'm going to answer those one at a time. So first question, did Shakespeare intend for his plays to be read? We really don't know because in his lifetime, he never published any of his plays. Now, a few of his plays were published, but they were kind of like pirated versions. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you, can you imagine what I would mean by a pirated version of his published plays? Tell me, Theo. Like um, somebody, t- like co- he copies it and then somebody takes it and prints it. Exactly. Right. So there are probably pirated versions of his play, but the first people to publish his plays, do you know who those people were? His descendants? No, that's a great guess. That's a great guess. Who else might it be? Who would know the plays really well? Um, his actors. His actors were the first people to publish his plays. So his actors definitely wanted Shakespeare's plays to be read. Did Shakespeare want them to be read? I'm not really sure. Probably he wouldn't object, right? He's not going to object if someone's like reading his words. Of course not. But he just never published them himself. Okay, what was your second question, mister? Why, w- why should we read Shakespeare rather than only see yeah. what's performed? If you guys listen to this show very much, you know that I'm a big advocate of seeing Shakespeare performed. And so, well, why would we read them if we could go see a great movie of his, of one of his plays, or better yet, go see like a great performance of one of his plays? Here's my answer. Why would we read him rather than see his works? I think if you're reading his plays, you can slow down and think a lot about the meaning and the beauty of the words, right? Because you can kind of like take the words at your own pace. You're reading, you're in charge. Whereas if an actor is delivering them to you, well, then they're just like racing past like a train car, you know? And if you see a really cool, colorful train car, you're like, oh, I want to look at that one. What's on the inside? too late. It's already gone. The train's racing, racing past you. So by reading, it's like slowing down the train so you can really think about each train car or like the meaning of each word or each phrase. How's that, Theo? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Theo, I feel like we had a couple of other questions that we just like skipped over. Like one of them was, would Shakespeare have written his plays differently if they were put into novel form? I forgot that one. That's a great question. What do you think? Um, would he like put it into a novel form? You mean like rewrite it? Yeah, like rewrite it as if it were yeah. a novel like Harry Potter or um, The Lord of the Rings. I don't know. It's like... 
when you create something pretty cool, why would you recreate it to adapt it to something else? Totally. Be put into that form. Totally. Okay. Putting aside the question of whether or not he would want to do it, what would need to change if he did do it? Okay. Think about this. Think about he's like, think about um, what's your favorite play? Is Julius Caesar your favorite play? Sure. We'll okay. That. Think about Julius Caesar. If, if you wanted Shakespeare to rewrite Julius Caesar and make it a, instead of a play, make it a novel, what would Shakespeare have to change? What would he have to add to what he's already got to make it into a novel? Um, maybe like na- narration. Because they're like Harry Potter books. There is an eighth one and it's in um, play form. And it's just not the same because you don't have like descriptions of things. Yeah, right. Um, so in the Harry Potter eighth book, what is it mostly? Most of the words, what are they? If it's not narration, what is it? It's just conversation. Just conversation. It's just dialogue. Well, Shakespeare's plays are almost entirely conversation, dialogue. So if you're going to make it into, if he was going to make it into a novel, be a lot more narration, maybe some inner thoughts or something like that. So it could be done, but I'm with you, man. If you did a great thing, why try to make it into something else? Okay. Thank you, Theo. Next up, Mercedes. Oh boy. (laughs) So my question is, um, is why is Shakespeare so vulgar, uh, repulsive, (laughs) disgusting, inappropriate, (laughs) It's just beyond <laughs> all bounds of decency. Okay, are you thinking of a particular play or a particular passage? I mean, just like all of his comedies that we've watched, we went and watched or read. We watched All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, I just saw Taming of No Much Ado About Nothing. Uh huh. And in pretty much all of the acts, some. <laughs> some inappropriate comment made yeah yeah okay and i'm taking from your tone that you do not like this (laughs) (laughs) am i right you don't like it you know i don't really (laughs) um because you because shakespeare should be like okay yeah right you're sitting there with your parents and they're making a joke about like anatomy or they're making <laughs> fart jokes and it's uncomfortable, right? Isn't that what's going on? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. It's just kind of, yeah. I just don't see what it adds. Okay. Then comedy. I think you actually do know what it adds because I happen to know one of your favorite shows, maybe, maybe your favorite show and they do on this show the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your whole family knows what I'm talking about. The, the Great British Baking Show. The Great British Baking Show. Okay. And the two comedians. But I never said I yes, the two that comedians. Okay. okay, I'm sorry. She also, should I say, we also like the comedy show Miranda. Miranda. It's, it's the same exact reason. It's all body humor. It's just it's talking body to humor. a different crowd. It's just talking to a different crowd. I agree. Okay, wh- Theo, yeah. who are the different crowds? <laughs> What'd you say, Mark? It's disgusting. <laughs> it's it's inappropriate. 
I just she I sounds like the 60 year old. No, no, no. But my question is more getting to. Does he ha- is he trying to like uh soften the uh oh, I know uh asking. the viewer or make the viewer feel more comfortable with his characters or make I don't know. Like you mean like is he a pl- like is he trying to make them like the common man or whatever? Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Trying like to reach the common, the common man. man. Okay, let's take Hamlet. Um, Hamlet, like my favorite character of all time, he appeals to kind of like the highest and noblest parts in us, like the deepest wells of our soul, right? Like everybody knows that about Hamlet. Hamlet also makes some really crude jokes. And if you don't know what they are, don't bother. Um, But he makes some really crude jokes, right? So why do you think Shakespeare made Hamlet both like high and low? My first thought is like to make him more accessible and relatable. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean somebody who's like a little bit cynical would say, well, he had to sell a bunch of tickets and the people who were only paying one penny per ticket, he had to kind of appeal to them because they were dock workers and they would only laugh at fart jokes or whatever. I think there's some truth to that, you know? And I also think like he's writing characters that like appeal to kind of like the best in us. And I'm not getting even say like the lowest in us, but like the like the earthy kind of gritty part of us. I have an anecdote from Charles Taylor, the writer of um, A Secular Age, and he talks about the growth of civility, but he has an anecdote from the 1500s where people walk down the street and talk about smelling each other's poop. <laughs> that like this was really? a thing that like there was just a lot more connection to bodies, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. And that he traces sort of the rise of civility and that has not really occurred for Shakespeare's age yet, which I think is an interesting thing to think about. Like they were just yeah. more comfortable with the, body. with the body. And interestingly enough, I remember my sister, one of her favorite articles, and I wish I could remember the name of it, is published in Harper's 10 years ago. It's just about the disappearance of the horse in yeah. like everyday life. And, and one, of the, one of the things that the article says is that if you're in any building and you walk outside of that building, the very first thing that you're going to smell up until like maybe a hundred years ago or 120 years ago was the smell of horse flesh or horse manure, like everywhere you go in a, like in a somewhat, I don't know, like urban area, not just a, like, not just farmland, but like an urban area. And the same surely is true about like Shakespeare's day. You would, if you walked out in the streets of London, you're smelling horse and horse manure everywhere. And you're also smelling chicken manure and there's no real deodorant, you know, you're smelling people everywhere. So yeah, I think you're right. I think it's like people were a lot more comfortable with the human body then than we are now. Hey, by the way, I don't know if you um, guys listened to the first episode on the life of Shakespeare, but it talked about how sugar was mm-hmm. such a prized commodity, so much so that people would like do all sorts of things. I think they would like blacken their teeth 
even if they were rich to show that they had access to sugar. Yeah, it's kind of a different world. Different world. Different world. But still, Mercedes, like, the Great British Baking Show is appealing to, like, highbrow, lowbrow. All Hollywood and um, Prue are the highbrow. For sure. Okay. Matt. Who's next? Who's next? By the way, Sophia is assistant producer on the plays, the thing. And this will be the second time she's ever been on the air. That's true. Congratulations. Well done. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, my question you talked a lot about kind of the myth and the past in the mm-hmm. two different mm-hmm. so my question is um should we just embrace shakespeare's mythic past or why is it worth continuing to try to create a quote-unquote historical shakespeare yeah i think that we should embrace both of them <laughs> um shakespeare's mythic past i think is kind of i think it's fun it's kind of tabloid and gossipy it's like the people magazine version of shakespeare you know, do they i don't even know i assume they still make people magazine yeah it's on like racks at the, at the grocery store um so yeah like all the stories about shakespeare didn't really write shakespeare it was francis bacon or edward de vere like the 17th century earl of oxford like that's fun it's fun to kind of think about that there's hardly any evidence. I mean, I don't know of a single Shakespeare scholar who's like, yeah, that's really plausible that Shakespeare didn't <laughs> write Shakespeare. And like, no one really who studied the issue very closely finds it at all plausible. However, it's a really great way to get students kind of curious mm-hmm. about Shakespeare. Like maybe there's a mystery back there. Oh, and I mean, like, who doesn't love solving a mystery? But I also love like the real kind of like academic serious inquiry about who he was and what his world was like. I think that stuff is really fascinating. Also, it just tends to be a little bit drier, you know, it's just not that exciting. I remember I read this book. I've talked about it a little bit on the air called the greatest actors in the world, huge academic book. And it goes play by play. And it tries to reconstruct who were the actors who played each individual role. And for me, a Shakespeare nerd, oh my gosh, I was lapping it up. But for people who like, you know, they love Shakespeare's, they like Midsummer Night's Dream, but they're not going to read a deep historical book on Shakespeare. Oh, it's so boring. It's so boring. But for me, for me, I like start to see how one actor, let me give you an example, because Emily, I think this might show up in Winter's Tale. Hmm. One of the theories is that Shakespeare, during his, some of the writing of his best female characters, think Hermione from Winter's Tale, think Lady Macbeth, of course, from Macbeth, those plays were written really close together. And there are a couple of other plays in there where the female characters are just great. They're really exemplary. They're like three-dimensional. And the theory of this book was Shakespeare, 
of course, because they only had male actors, there were no female actors. Shakespeare had in his acting troupe, a really great young man Mm. playing Lady Macbeth, playing Hermione, right? Mercedes, you love Hermione. Like a young man is playing Hermione, Lady Macbeth. And he wrote these great female characters for this Mm. actor to play until the theory goes, can you guess what happened next? Does he die? No. Oh, good. It turns out he's a woman. (laughs) No, no. He, he grows up and he grows up and his voice changes. His voice changes. Yeah. His yeah. voice breaks. And the, he, so Shakespeare's like, I can't write, you know, yeah. a female part for this young man anymore. Cause he, now he sounds like a man. That's the theory. Like you have to kind of go, you have to build this theory on like little scraps of evidence, but I think it's really interesting and fun. Yeah. So anyway, that's a long way of saying, I like embracing both like, the tabloid Shakespeare and the academic Shakespeare. I like both of those. And I like that question. Weren't you, weren't you thinking of it, the mythic past of like just Shakespeare as like uh, exceeding all history? Yeah. I think in some ways that of just like, he's kind of larger than life larger in than some life. ways, you know, right. that like, why not just embrace like the Shakespeare that no human could actually be in some ways. Oh. And so if he is, we say more, same word, Sophia. In like the sense that like no one person could fit this mold. Like there's no way that a person, oh. I guess I think of like somebody like King Arthur mm-hmm. in like the round table, you know, somebody like that. Like, why don't we just let Shakespeare become that kind of person? Uh, yeah. Sir, Sir Gowan, maybe mm-hmm. somebody like that, that is beyond human, but has a lot, shares a lot of human qualities. See, part of me, I honestly, I with if I ever get really depressed at the state of humanity, you know, like I just get really down. <laughs> I'm feeling blue and I'm reading like googlenews.com headlines and it's Stop nothing doing but that. I know I have yeah. stopped doing that. I okay. have stopped doing that. I'm not you doing it good. anymore. <laughs> but we have moments of weakness, right? <laughs> and I read these headlines and I'm like, "Oh my gosh." Oh my gosh. But then I think, I honestly think, but there was Shakespeare. <laughs> I swear. And I also think, but there was Socrates. There was Jesus. <laughs> and I, and I sw- I'm not kidding you. I think there was Socrates. And I think, but there was Jesus. There's hope for us still. There's hope for us still. So I don't want it to, I don't want Shakespeare to be just sort of like this, like amalgam of like, <laughs> five people who are all like, you know, pretty good, but together as a composite, like Shakespeare is like a kind of composite genius. I don't really want to buy it. If it's true, it's true, but I don't really want to buy it. He's holding out for the you, man. You I'm holding out for the saying, guy. Thank goodness there was King Arthur. You just don't say that. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with him. I, I, that's fine. That's fair. I totally, it's fair. We have two more um, question askers left. You want to go or do you want me to go? I don't know. Okay. So my question, I talked to you about it, Tim. It's a little bit more of a discussion. This summer, we were able to see at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival an original practices production. Mm -hmm. Actually, this was the first year that they didn't do Shakespeare. They did um, Ben Johnson's The Alchemist. Oh, yeah. They only do it one night a summer. And so we got to be there for it. And it was really fun and enlightening to see this original practices production 
because I've never done it. And, and uh, tell me what, like, what did the original practices look like? Yeah, it was so interesting. So um, the actors brought their own costumes because actors in Shakespeare's day provided their own costumes. Mm. So the costumes were really eclectic and interesting. They had um, a line giver on the stage because the amount of practice time that they would have to put on a play would not allow for fully memorized. So people in the play said line and they were no way they did. The other thing was that it was done in the light. So we were in an outdoor theater and it was done in the light so that they could see the audience because they would make jokes to get feedback from the audience. Like they would do all the <laughs> yes. jokes. Yeah. So that they could have like feedback from the audience. When they only had the one script, they only gave the, their section to each person. Yeah. Expensive to write. To write out on an entire script. Yeah. They had a musician on mm-hmm. stage who was improvising at proper moments. They actually had uh, the audience members on stage, because I guess that was a practice as well, that you would have audience members on stage. Really, like sitting on the on the edges of the stage or something. No, in the no, stage, like in, 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 the, in what the action? Yeah, in the action. They chose people, and they so, used yeah. them a lot, like multiple times throughout the play. Yeah, and they think that this is what happened at yes. the Globe. Yes, this is all yeah. based on historical historical practice. So it was interesting because the feeling of the performance was much more improvisatory mm. and much more um, participatory for the audience. It reminded me of the scene from a movie we both love, Amadeus. Yeah. Where it's the a performance of the magic flute. Yeah. Right. And that, do you remember that scene? They pull somebody up from the front row. Yeah. And, and like the ground, the essentially the groundlings at the opera are all, you know, reacting to what's going on on stage. Yeah. Um, just yeah. so it's interesting to think about it. I don't know. What do you think of original well, practices? I would love to see something like that. And I did not know a lot of what you just told me. I will say, Galen and I, as you guys know, went to the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh in August, and the largest arts festival in the world. It's not a 2D or a 3D arts festival. It's a performing arts festival, like acrobatics to theater to music to comedy. And they would, all these things that you're saying, I'm like, oh, that's the stuff they did at the Fringe. They would bring people up on stage all the time. The lighting sometimes, but not always is they had limited lighting. And Hmm. so the audience is oftentimes more lit than it would be in like what we think of as traditional Mm -hmm. modern theater. Mm -hmm. And so they would, they're always looking out at the audience and kind of, you know, like singling out somebody and teasing that person, whatever. So, and that's one of the things that we loved about Mm -hmm. the fringe festival, you know? So I can I can completely imagine that being really exciting. The costumes. Yeah. So I just want to like go back to this. So if um if Sophia was cast in a Shakespeare play, her director presumably would be like, "Okay, you're playing this character named um Ophelia." do your best. And so she just goes to her wardrobe and pulls out whatever she's got. Yeah. It was a very, it was, um, very interestingly styled. It was, it was, I mean, it fit the play. It fit the play. Right. It did fit the play. It was a funny play. It's Um, very physical. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds kind of terrific. 
It was fun. It was. Um, it's one of those interesting questions. It's actually, can I follow up with another question? Oh, yeah, please. Um, in the, it, it was interesting to experience this because in the classical music world, there's an analog to this where people try to recreate the original tuning, the original instruments, you know, so like they're trying to make it sound mm. like when Bach or Beethoven performed these works. The thing that was interesting about the original practices in this case was it was far less, um, I don't know, stuffy, I guess. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it yeah. opened it up in a different way. But like one of the things that's really amazing about Shakespeare is the timelessness. Is there value in in doing original practices? I don't know. You know, it's just sort of a question within the classical art world of all different practices. Yeah. he is so timeless and we all bring a sort of like language of expectation to whatever play or musical performance we're seeing in 2022, 2021, 2020, right? Like we show up with an expectation and to some degree, the performer has to fulfill that expectation. And if they break the expectation a little bit, oh, it's kind of interesting. And if they break it too much, well, then it's too much and we don't like it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like, it's jarring and we can't really enjoy the art. We can't enjoy the music, can't enjoy yeah. the performance. It becomes a, bar- a barrier to it. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes a barrier. So that's, that's kind of my question back to you is, did you find the original practices intriguing as a kind of artifact or do you think they actually contributed to the performance? Yeah, I think that that's the interesting question. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Because I think that's what a lot of original practices moves. They become interesting as sort of an intellectual exercise, but not necessarily. So, I mean, I think it's true. It was a little bit, it was a little bit disconcerting. And mm-hmm. the Alchemist is kind of a, since it's more of a farcical play, it probably worked better. But I was trying to imagine what would this be like with, Richard the Third. I mean, that yeah. would be very, very different, you know, because there's there is an expectation there of being able to enter in seamlessly to this other world that that experience didn't present. So I do think it's an interesting question. There's a famous production of Hamlet that was done in New York in the late '50s. It was directed by John Gilgood, and it starred who's that famous Welsh actor? Oh my gosh, his voice was married to Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, Richard, um, Burton. Richard Burton played Hamlet. Oh, wow. And it's great. It used to be on YouTube, the whole thing. I think they've since taken it down, but it's worth searching for. Um, Gilgood directed it and opening rehearsal night, he takes a hanger, a rolling hanger of clothes with just street clothes, you know, mm-hmm. very basic stuff. Like, you know, turtlenecks and slacks for guys and very simple dresses and blouses for women. And he had them choose just from this kind of like everyday wear what they would wear. And so Hamlet wears a black turtleneck and black slacks and Ophelia wears, you know, a very simple kind of smock dress. It's, and it's wonderful because it just scales everything way, way down, makes it super, super simple 
Mm-hmm. And so the concentration and the concentration of the play is not on um what was right, the fifth or sh- or- yeah, 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 yeah. It's not on the exotic, it's on the right. words and the acting. Right. And it's famous for a reason because it just worked so well. Right. And it sounds a little bit like kind of like a nod to original practices, maybe in a way. Is it? But that's the thing. I mean, just your point to Theo's question, why it's not a novel, right? There's not yeah. description. And so that's what makes him so translatable totally. to stage it in these different eras, which is always, I mean, when it's done well and you have a modern staging or just a different time, it really adds so much. So it I mean, really I does. kind of feel like original practices is more of a, I don't know. I guess I was coming out more on the side of it's an interesting thing to experience, but not necessarily like Shakespeare of all things perhaps works better as not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do right. Right. I know that. exactly what you mean. I know. exactly. So do you remember, I don't know, maybe this is like 10, 12 years ago when um, it was during the Obama administration and there was this big worry that people's privacy data, like on their phones and their computers, maybe not medical records, but, but it turned out that the government had been, had access to all that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this big worry is the government spying on us. Okay. Big, important concern. There was a Hamlet done then. I can't remember who produced it, but David Tennant played Hamlet Mm -hmm. and they made a film out of it. And it was really, really smartly done because what they did was they took video cameras and no matter where Hamlet was, they would cut to this video camera, like, you know, kind of a little bit grainy. Um, And so it gave this sort of feeling that Hamlet was always being spied on, which really tied really neatly into what was happening out in the world. And I actually think, it's a great way to stay. I, th- I think all that you need to, to pose Hamlet as sort of like a prisoner within his own kingdom, always being spied on, it's, it's there already. Like he's always being spied on yeah. in every single scene, even Ophelia yeah. is spying on him, maybe against her will, but she's all, you know, he's always under watch. And mm-hmm. part of the reason that he's acting so crazy is because he knows he's being spied on all the time. Right. And so the kind, yeah, that production in London also with Andrew, what's his name? The guy you love. Oh, 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 um, um, sorry. Yeah, of course. The Irish actor. Yes. The Irish actor. Yeah. They use that same exact thing. Do you remember that? Yeah, they do. They They do. They have the guard room. A little bit different way, but right. Yeah. It, it, it illuminates it in a different way, which I think is amazing. That's what's amazing. I do too. I agree. I totally agree. We have one more question to go. Let me briefly plug a couple of things. So Mercedes, who was asking the question about why is Shakespeare so, you know, bawdy, why all the fart jokes, everybody. Mercedes and I did, along with four of our friends in York, Pennsylvania, we did a um, class on how I like to teach Shakespeare. And if you have any interest in it, you can find it on Classical U, and that's the letter U, not Y-O-U, but the letter U, Classical U, um, and just type my name or 
um, teaching Shakespeare in the classroom is the title of the, of the class. It's a five-part class, moderately priced. It's really good. It's really, really good. And Mercedes and her um, friends who were the actors in the, in this class were terrific. So that's my first plug teaching Shakespeare in the classroom on classical U. My second plug is I actually have done um, what I call a Shakespeare showcase for the Maeda, the school that the Maeda kids have gone to the Paideia school in Fort Collins. And I offer that service to other people who want to bring me in. It's really, it's, it's really fun. And students who have maybe never touched Shakespeare before can get up on their feet and do, and they end up doing really well with some good preparation. So if that interests you, the website is simple. Tim teaches Shakespeare.com. And even if you're not interested in that service, but you're like, man, I would really like to try a few scenes with my students, but I don't know which scenes to pick. I have a free scene page, 40 scenes, and you can search according to categories. You know, like I want a female monologue, search, click. There's like the five female monologues that I've selected. So Tim teaches Shakespeare.com. You can get free scenes there. Or if you're interested in um, bringing me out to do a Shakespeare showcase for your school and you can find all the information there. Okay. That's the end of my plugging. Mark Maeda, you uh, have a question and I don't football. have any idea what this question is. I know this is a free for all, <laughs> Yeah, but to follow up on your, your last plug where the services you offer about doing the showcase. Yeah. It, it was really great to see kids that were, mm, quiet and not really outgoing like transformed through that process yeah i was just thinking that one kid now he signs his emails hamlet yeah and yeah he would never never act that's my honestly it's i think it's the thing that's most exciting and satisfying is that sometimes you'll see a person who's shy and you know they're not quite sure who they are and they perform one or two scenes of Shakespeare and they master the language and they stand up with their back straight and their shoulders square and they walk And at the end of the performance, they go home and I swear they're a different person. You yeah. know, they're just yeah. different. Something changed. Yeah. And with so much more confidence. Yeah. We are. yeah. For sure. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thanks, Mark. So you've talked a lot about Hamlet. Yes, yeah. I want you to defend why you think Hamlet is William Shakespeare's best play. Defend it. Defend it. <laughs> um, do you have a counter proposal? I do not. Okay. <laughs> we do. We may. We may over here. Oh, you guys may have a counter. Okay. I think that Hamlet, and this is going to be me repeating what I said in The Life of Shakespeare. I think that Shakespeare put on display in Hamlet, and I think later in Othello, also in King Lear, I think he put kind of like the inward person or like the soul somehow on display through action and words. Um, And I think he did that at the same time that he wrote kind of a rip roaring revenge tragedy play that is just a fun play 
to watch. Is Hamlet going to get revenge for his father and kill Uncle Claudius, you know, and assume the throne himself? I think it's like a great, fun plot and you care to find out. But the inner part of Hamlet is so powerful that you almost sometimes forget the plot. You're like, oh, yeah, we're at a fencing scene in Act 5 because... This is the moment that Hamlet's going to hopefully get revenge. I've forgotten about it because I've been so paying attention to who he is on the inside. I just think that's Titanic. Okay, that's my defense. Who is the counter or which play is the counter? What about King Lear? I, I'm not going to fight really hard because I think King Lear is like, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. For the same reasons, honestly, for the, yeah, same, for the same reasons. But don't you think Hamlet has some funny digressions? Yeah, for sure he has some funny digressions. I, don't you think Lear is a bit of a tighter play? Leading questions. Well, <laughs> we're all about efficiency. <laughs> Really utilitarian around here. Because Sophia was putting forward Macbeth, which I didn't agree with. I did not agree with Macbeth, but you can defend Macbeth. I won't defend Macbeth. I, I agreed with Lear more than. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Macbeth is tighter than either of them. It's the no, shortest it's play in the whole canon. It's, it's always on task. It's, it's shorter. It is tighter in some ways because the characters are less mysterious. Yeah, that's the thing. They're more, I think they're more one, they're more one dimensional. There's not as much of the inner. It's, yeah. it's really yeah. fun but they're more one-dimensional. But I mean, okay, Macbeth is definitely internal. I mean, um, yeah. If it were, if it were done, when it is done, then Torwell would done quickly. If the assassination and there's that whole interior about, am I going to do this? I'm not going to do it because look, I just looked at myself. I'm ambitious. That's the reason I want to kill the king is because I'm ambitious. Now. Yeah. Your counter, I'm not even letting you guys talk, sorry. <laughs> I think Richard III is also interior, but in a way yes. that is not nearly as satisfying or profound as Hamlet, Lear, Othello, Macbeth. Yeah, I agree. Richard, because he's a little, he's a little hard on Richard III, you know, he yeah. doesn't care make him quite so complex yeah he's more of a villain he's more of a villain and he says so from like the first line the of the play basically yeah from the very beginning or, or richard the well, third like he's complex but in the same way he's kind of predictable i agree <laughs> i he think is mercedes a- is down on Macbeth. <laughs> no i've no really read, we just read it and i really like it um i mean Macbeth, the character you're like he's a clown he is a clown. He he's predictable because I think he has Lady Macbeth. I yeah. think that's the reason he's predictable. Yeah. Wait, true. say more. Explain that. He's predictable because he has Lady Macbeth. Because he his character is so easily formed by other characters. Mm. And Lady Macbeth oh. is such a sure character. So that's why he's predictable because you know that Lady Macbeth is gonna get the best. Well, I yeah. Mean, the thing yeah. is this reading of it is though that Lady Macbeth, when he's like, oh, I can't, or he says, you kill him. And she's like, no, no, I can't. Right. Mm, that struck me this reading. Right. But she's, she's very forceful in making him. It's movies. true. Yeah. 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 She never wavers until she like loses until she's it. Until asked to do it. And then she refuses. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Um, Which like is surprising. Three, right? three, maybe. Three, yes, it yeah. is. 
Yeah. And that really hit me on this read through. I do have a bonus question. Let's hear it. I can't remember how we got to this last night in our discussions of Shakespeare, but at some point, oh, I think Mark said, so who would Tim like better, Shakespeare or Woodrow Wilson? (laughs) I said, I said, but who would have made the better settlement to World War I, Woodrow Wilson or Shakespeare? And we all know the answer to that question. Yeah, William Shakespeare. He, he understands government in Lear and Macbeth. He shows that he does. Uh, Mercedes, I would even ask it is, I would even say that it's like the overwhelming preoccupation of almost every single one of his plays. It like maybe it's not in Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, it is. Yeah, it, yeah, it kind yeah, of is. They have to flee to the forest. Social right? order is like a big thing. Oh, it's <laughs> massive. It's massive. Yeah. No, I agree. No, I couldn't argue at all that. Okay, <laughs> listeners, you just were brought in on an inside joke. <laughs> the inside joke is that I read a biography and I've read a couple of histories about Woodrow Wilson, and he is most definitely a faulted man. So, you know, you. the president Noted. of the United States um, at the end of World War, during, before, during, and after World War I a very complicated man. Um, but I think that his, he's a net positive for the country. And, <laughs> and Emily Maeta, every time his name even comes up in polite company, like breathes fire about him. All I need to say is the treaty of Versailles. That's all I need to say. And I'm, and I would defend him that the treaty of Versailles he, the the cards were stacked against him because England and France were so they there was no way they'd be appeased in their hatred oh, of Germany. America saved their butts in the war. Yeah, they were they, they were great. They with had him. so much sway in that decision. They sure he did. tried. It's not like he didn't try. Read the transcripts. He tried. <laughs> Wait, stop. We got to come back to Shakespeare. Okay. <laughs> How are we going to come back to Shakespeare after that? I have no idea. Except to say, say, we're going to say, Tim, it follows perfectly off of your little meditation on thank goodness there's Shakespeare, because we could all think if only Shakespeare had been there, maybe he would have found a different solution. I, if he'd had the political clout, I think he would have. I think he would have too. Yeah. That's a I great, that's a great way to wrap up this show. If only Shakespeare would have been around. Yeah, At the, the end of World War II during the Treaty of Versailles. Okay, but okay, in, in all honesty, this is part of the reason that we read Shakespeare, right? Is because yes. he is like so ennobling. He is. He sheds a light on the places that we'd rather not look. Yes. And not just as individuals, but also as a collective. He exactly. shines a light on like the way that we act in a collective. He sure does. That's a great place to stop. Hey, I want to thank all of you and you might this was so much fun this might have to happen again but we'll i'll circle back to you guys on that um for those of you who are curious about the winter's tale please join us for episode one we're going to record in a week and there is a wonderful version on youtube by the royal shakespeare academy 1999 emily told me about it starling starring 
Anthony Schur, S-H-E-R, who is also my favorite John Falstaff, Sir John Falstaff from oh. Henry Fourth, Henry the Fourth, Parts One okay. and Two. He's magnificent, larger than life. This time he plays a doubly bad guy. He plays Leontes. Can I just say something? Because I had seen a couple other performances where um, Leontes has played more interiorly, and I said, you know what? He's playing Leontes in a Falstaffian way. So, oh, really? Really? I just felt like he, yeah. Anyway, you can see when, yeah. Anyway, so that's amazing that he was the embodiment of Falstaff. Yeah, yeah, he was. He's a terrific Falstaff, and he's a he's a terrific Leontes. So, tune in for that. Um, That will be our next full length podcast recording. Until then, I want to thank the Maeda family, even Max and Thomas and Evangelina. We miss you guys. And I would thank all of you for tuning in. It's been a real pleasure. And we will see you for Act One of Winter's Tale. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.